I want you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30 is where we're going to begin to help set the tone. We'll end up being in Matthew chapter 6 as we continue our verse-by-verse study there. This is great. What a way. This, is, this, this line is going to help us set the tone for this morning's message. It's a tone that help us should uh, atone that should be established for us in all of our life. In Proverbs chapter 30, you know, most of these Proverbs, they're, they're Solomons that have been put together. At the end of this, there's some words from other men. This guy's name is Agur, and he begins in verse 2. Surely I am more stupid than any man. We all need a heavy dose of intentional humility. I don't know where you are in your career or in the word, in life, in a lot of different ways. You can define yourself as an expert in some areas in your life. But when you look at the whole picture of where you are in creation, in your knowledge, in your life experience, when you look at your own soul, we all need this heavy dose of of humility of just, you know what? Surely, Lord, I am a stupid man. I do not have the understanding of a man. I have neither learned wisdom nor the knowledge of the Holy One. And again, this doesn't mean that there's, there's no education, there's no experience, just in the grand scheme of things. Understanding God, his ways, his order. We have all these little glimpses, but in its foundation, we are very ignorant individuals. And this, again, this stands in direct contrast to Solomon and Ecclesiastes where he's putting forth his resume of how wise he is, how smart he is, how he studied all of these things out, and he boils life down to eat, drink, be merry, enjoy your, enjoy your life underneath the umbrella of the fear of God and a relationship with God. Agur, on the very other side of that spectrum, is just beginning with it. I'm not very bright, Lord. Who's ascended to heaven or descended? Who's gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established the ends of the earth? Look at just these definitions of God as creator. Ask this, what's his name and what's his son's name? And that, how much of that is, uh, you know, what is the Lord's name as he's declared himself? I am Yahweh. What's his son's name? Is that in relation to Israel being identified as the Lord's son? Is that messianic in its meaning? What is his son's name, if you know? Verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Two things, God, I'm requesting of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies from me. And give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is why we're here this morning. This, uh, we're pressing into Jesus' instruction in regards to that which we value, what we would define as our treasure. 
And he's going to say where your treasure is, what you value, that's where your heart is, that's where your attention is. Now, as we go through this conversation, um, it's going to demand a very specific balance. And that's Agur's prayer to the Lord of, Lord, give me a balance. Don't give me so much excess in life that I forget about you and that I ignore you. And I just trust in myself and my riches and my plans. Don't give me that much, Lord, where I'm just tempted to drift away from you. At the same time, don't give me so little that that's all I'm focused on every single day is where is my next meal coming from? Don't, Lord, put me in a position materially where I feel that I'm justified in the need to steal for my own bread. Lord, provide a balance in my life so that I always remember you, so that I always pursue you. So this idea in that wisdom, in that balance, in the idea of humility, that's what we're going to press into in in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6. So go ahead and turn there. We'll end up finishing in some instruction of Paul to Timothy that brings out all of these same ideas. We are jumping into the middle of the context here in Matthew 6. Again, this is a sermon of Jesus recorded by Matthew on the hills just on the north side of the Sea of Galilee as Jesus is giving instruction to a mass of people major topics in regards to the kingdom of God, in regards to God's righteousness. Last week, we finished out this section of these things that he's defined as righteous acts in our life, whether it's the giving of alms, helping the needy and the poor, our prayer to God and the content of what that prayer ought to look like. Last week, finishing in fasting, this self-denial as it relates to our relationship with God and as it relates to our relationship with other people. And not jumping, it feels like he's not just, he's not springboarding, but as he shifts into the next subject, he's still pressing into this idea of self-denial. Because when we fast, we're telling ourselves no. When it comes to that which we value, there are many things in life that we need to tell ourselves no and have a balance in. So we are going to pick this up in verse 19. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If, therefore, your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." If, therefore, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And that word for mammon it's believed to be an, an Aramaic word, which would have been the, the, the language of the day. Uh, mammon, it's, it's personified here, but its idea is tied to riches and tied to wealth. 
just so you know. So back up to verse 19. Here's the instruction. First, beginning with the negative. Don't lay up. Don't store. Don't make greater for yourselves treasures on this earth where you can look at anything in this life. There is a decay. There is a defiling. There is a corruption. When it comes to moths, if you have a, you know, ladies, you've, you've saved your wedding dress. If you've just hung your wedding dress in a closet and just let it sit there, little critters are going to eat away at that fabric. It's going to be destroyed. That memory, that nostalgia, it's all going to fade away. Same thing when it comes to your money. Same thing when it comes to any other possession. Easy come, easy go are the types of saints. So what Jesus is focusing on is we have certain, we all attribute value to different people, to different items materially, different ideas to different degrees in our lives. And as we're experiencing our own relationship with God, as we're going through our own circumstances, we can have different reasons for why we place more value on one thing rather than another. But his focus is here is that which you place value on, make sure that the emphasis, do not is the imperative. Don't place all this emphasis on things that you can see in this world because that's not what life is all about. Our life is a vapor. It is very temporary. We are just passing through. But there is an eternity of a relationship with our almighty God that that ought to be our focus today in every aspect of our life. But those things that you value are those things which you pay attention to. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So, and again, these are, these are things that we ebb and flow in, in, our, in our life. The focus of treasure, clearly the idea is with money. So if you have an unhealthy relationship with money, Usually unhealthy relationships, it's pulling a lot of your attention. It's pulling a lot of your, your goals, your thinking, your processes. You can be a very wealthy person and have a very unhealthy relationship with money. Same way if you're middle class, same way if you're dirt poor. So this isn't a class thing. This is a heart thing. This isn't a volume thing. This is looking at your personal relationship with individuals and items that you value. Make sure that it's based upon your true relationship with God because whatever you value, that's where your heart and your attention is going to be. And this is where balance comes into it. You can be very wealthy and be a totally stingy and being a miser and withholding from others because you're saving for your rainy day. But you have to have a balance, right? In life, we need to have savings. We need to have a buffer. Emergencies occur in all of our lives. And the older you get, the bigger the check, not that we write checks anymore, but the bigger the expense seems to be. You know, when I, we were young married, that, that emergency fund was 100 bucks. Then it needs to grow to 1000 bucks, And then it needs to grow because the emergencies, the need for that cash flow grows, right? And if I don't have that savings in place, then I'm not able to meet the needs of those emergencies that are going to come in life. 
So I'm addressing that just to say that there has to be a proper balance in relationship in this conversation. It's not that you just totally ignore. So there's many in their relationship with God throughout the centuries that says all money is evil, all materialism is evil. It's not going to have any control in my life whatsoever. I'm not going to have any of it. I'm going to take this vow of poverty and just live my life in service to the Lord. Does God call people to do that? Absolutely. That's what he's called you to do, then be obedient in it and live out that conviction and that relationship with the Lord. To others, he's given the gift just to know how to make money. There's some, there's some people that are really good in regards to business and their, their spheres in which they earn their incomes. And making money is super easy. And that doesn't mean just because they can make money really easy doesn't mean that they're automatically out of, um, you know, out of order in their relationship with the Lord. We define many ways God giving us material items as being a blessing from God. So he provides for us. He watches over us. He spoils us. If you have a need materially, ask God for it. Don't let it consume you. Don't let it worry you. Don't let it stress you. That's where the conversation is going to go in a couple of weeks. But this whole thing of, Lord, I'm in need, this is what we've been talking about in his prayers. God knows our need before we even ask. But don't let that need consume your heart. So the subject matter in regards to your treasure could be money. Your, your treasure could be your body. It could be all about the gym and working out. Your treasure could be your relationship. As parents, there are many parents who their most valuable thing in this world is their child, and they live for the existence of their children, not for their relationship with the Lord. Anything that becomes more valuable in your life than your relationship with God, there's a deviation there. There's an out-of-orderness there. I love my wife. I, I brag about her all the time to you. I value her more than any other human being in this world, including my children. You're welcome, Trinity. My, and our kids know that. But I love my daughter. I love my sons. I treasure them. My parents are in the room. My in-laws are in the room. I treasure those relationships. I treasure those relationships with you over relationships with other human beings. There's, there's a rightness to that. But anytime, if I put Julie before Jesus, if I put my children before Jesus, there is my treasure, there is my value, there is my pursuit, there is my concern. That's where my focus is on life. And all of a sudden, I start becoming a proud man, an angry man, because the pressures of life, just whatever that, uh, those circumstances are going to take my, the, the, my heart down a certain path. Jesus is getting at this whole conversation this foundational statement of wherever your treasure is, whatever you value, there your heart is going to be also. Therefore, lay up treasures in heaven. Lay up treasures in relationship with God where these are eternal subject matters that we're talking about while at the same time being balanced. You can't be so focused on heaven that you have no relationships and no concern with earth. That's where this, where we began 
again in Proverbs, there's, there's a balance in these ideas. And Jesus can actually hold your, hold your place here. Turn to 2 Corinthians really quick. In regards to relationships with other people, how we can misunderstand one another, those relationships that we value and that we treasure, um, they can be really painful and they can really hurt when somebody that you value, you think that they've done something wrong or they have actually done something wrong. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthian church where the Corinthians, they have an issue with Paul. And Paul is defending himself. And as he's going through this conversation defending himself in chapter 3, he uses all these statements of, of things that we have over and over again. He talks about uh, beginning in chapter 3, you are our epistle written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Again, he's expressing his heart to the Corinthian church. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Paul's expressing that I came with the gospel. I shared Jesus with you. You've responded to the Lord. Your, your life is written on my heart. Your life is written on the heart of Christ. Uh, not with ink, but the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on, on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we... We have such trust through Christ toward God. Again, this is Paul's defining multiple things here. These, these things that we have in our relationships with other. Uh, jump down. I'm, we're going to just skip along the surface here. Jump down to verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness of speech. Again, Paul is defending his ministry, his relationship with the Lord, his relationship with the Corinthians that have misunderstood things. Here he's, he's talking about here's the trust that we all have in God together. Here's the incredible hope that we have in God. Therefore, we use great boldness of speech as we speak the truth to one another. Chapter 4 says we have this ministry. We've been given a, a calling and instructions from the Lord. This is, this is the ministry, the service that we do to the Lord, for the Lord, to people, for his people. This is something that we possess. This is something that we treasure. This is something that we have. We've also received mercy from God. We do not lose heart. In other words, we have courage in that relationship. And we have renounced the hidden things of shame. We're not walking in craftiness. We're not handling the word of God deceitfully. Um, but by the manifestation of the truth, we're commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Again, it's, it's all about the Lord as we're ministering, as we're serving. We're, we're, who we value and what we value is our God, our Christ. 
his message, the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation. Jesus in the flesh, he is the very image of the eternal God. We're not preaching ourselves. We're not preaching our ministry style. We're not preaching our riches, our power over people. We are preaching Jesus Christ the Lord. And to you, as we communicate ourselves, we're communicating that we're your servants for Jesus' sake. Not to be used and abused, but in relationship with one another. It is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness in creation and who is shown in our own hearts and our own souls to give the light of knowledge, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So as Paul's addressing and making all of these comments, his argument gets to verse 7 there. We've got this treasure in these earthen vessels. Again, getting to what you sit with Paul in this argument in regards to what he values, who he values. He values his creator. Remember, Paul is a, was an extremely religious Jewish man who is intentionally seeking out and persecuting believers in Jesus as the Messiah to force them to renounce their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. This is the man who has a radical conversion, a radical interaction with the Lord that humbles him, blinds him, knocks him down to the ground on this Damascus Road experience. And hears this voice and who are you, Lord? And Lord, what do you want me to do? Great questions. Given his sight back called on a very specific ministry. In that ministry, he is told from the very beginning, Paul, here's all of these things that you're going to suffer for my name's sake. And Paul says, I believe and I'll follow. And now as he has done that for decades, and now he is addressing individuals that have responded to that service and to that ministry, there's now, there's now tension those that valued Paul at one point in his life, now they've devalued him for very specific reasons. And Paul's trying to get that relationship right. And as he's given all of this definition for our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with one another, he's saying we hold this treasure, this fellowship, our almighty God, our relationship with one another, our service, our hope, the mercy that we've received. We hold all of this treasure in these earthen vessels, these broken minds, these stupid men, stupid women that really don't know as much as we think that we know in our life circumstances, out of balance, out of sorts. And he goes on in this, that in this earthen vessel, that we're holding this treasure in, it's the excellence of the power, the excellence of the power that it may be of God, not of us. We're hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. 
And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what, what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believed and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes that grace having spread through many, may cause thanksgiving and abound to the glory of God. In this conversation, turn back to Matthew. Paul is getting at, again, that what's really important in life, what the Corinthians ought to value in their relationship with Paul and their relationship with Jesus. And this, this, this humble recognition that we're all going through these trials, these pressures of life, these, and the pressures often want to take our attention and cause us to value other things other than which we should. They're taking our eyes and placing them on other things, and our heart now starts to pursue after those that which we value because we want to be we want the circumstance to go away we want the provision to come in we want to be fixed is the idea of what Paul is addressing and how that links back to where we are in Jesus's teaching as Jesus is saying where your treasure is there your heart will be also he starts to talk about our eye and this is the language that he uses your eye it's a lamp for your soul for your body What's really cool illustration is Jesus in Revelation 21, he is defined as the lamp of God. When you talk about the eternal forever heaven where you are going to abide in the presence of the almighty God, there is no sun, there is no moon. We are told that Jesus is the lamp of that environment, that he is the light. And this is the imagery that he's using. The lamp of your body, of your soul, of your mind is your eye. Because he's addressing the eye gate. We have this ear gate, what we listen to. We have to be careful to the words that we listen to. But when it comes to our eye gate, what we let in to our soul has a great influence upon what we're meditating on, what we choose to speak, what we choose to pursue in our life. And this is what he's getting at. If your eye is healthy, if your eye is singular, if your eye is aimed at Jesus First and foremost, in every area of your life, the light that comes into your body, because the eye gate, this is, this is this, the, the physical piece of our body that God has allowed light to come into us where we interact with our environment. So if your eye is healthy, if your eye is aimed at the Lord, the light that's within you, that which you meditate on, it's going to be good. It's going to be right. It's going to help keep you in right relationship with things and people that you value in your life experience. However, if your light is bad, so in a physical body, if your eye is bad, your eye gate doesn't work and it doesn't allow light into your soul. Therefore, you're blind. It's darkness. So Jesus is getting into this teaching. If the light that you let into your soul, those things that you covet, those things that you desire, those things that you value, if that light is really darkness and it's unhealthy, how great is the darkness in your soul? If that treasure, that thing which you value, if it's your money, if it's your job title, if it's power over people, 
whatever this thing is or these many things that can come in and out of our lives over time where we're attributing more value and out-of-balance value to that, it's going to breed darkness in our souls. So you think that you're right. You think that you can see, but you're seeing falsely. So put this into a practical body. You're walking down the road. Your eye tells you that the sidewalk keeps going. Your eyeball is giving you false information. It's giving you darkness. You don't see the cliff and you keep walking and you fall off the cliff. The false vision leads you to death in that scenario. That's the idea that Jesus is giving at, getting at. If the light that you see really is darkness, how dangerous is that false light, that false idea, the false value that you can attribute to other people and to other things? It's always going to bring about a dimmer switch in your relationship with God when we want Jesus and all of his light and all of his glory illuminating our souls. This is where Egger began with in regards to, I don't have any knowledge. I'm ignorant. That confession of humility is then to turn and God, I need your wisdom. I need your knowledge. I need to know. I need your light in my soul and what the circumstance is. Then Jesus, in this, again, the major focus, your treasure, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart is your thought process, what you meditate on, what you're pursuing, what you're doing. He gives this example in regards to our eye gates, where our visual attention is, and that which we are looking at is that which is capturing the attention of our heart and soul. So there's this warning in regards to not being deceived, uh, not believing false things, thinking that you're valuing the right things in the right way. Again, there's that warning there, that check there. And then verse 24, getting into this whole idea of you can't serve God and serve something else. You can't serve God and you can't serve mammon, money, wealth. And here's, here's the analogy. You can't have two bosses at your job. If you go to your place of employment and you have two individuals that equally get to determine what you do with your time, what projects that you work on, at one point you're going to be loyal to one and do what one's telling you to do and you're going to be disloyal to the other. And this is the language that he's getting and nobody can be the servant of two lords. You're going to hate one and love the other is the language. Or you're going to be loyal. You're going to be devoted to one. Or you're going to despise. You're going to look down on the other. And the other here, this is, uh, you know, these, these two different masters, they're not equal. They're not the same. When we talk about who God is as creator, as provider, as savior, go on through the... Uh, just the list of attributes of our incredible God. There is none other like him. 
So the word for other here, it's not another of the same kind. When Jesus says that he's going to send another helper, when he ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit was sent, that another helper is another of the same kind. The Holy Spirit, God, Jesus, God, the Father, God, same kind, another of the same kind is the idea as we talk about the Trinity. Here the language is, you can't serve me and I am one and I am only and I am unique and anything else that you attempt to define is having power over you. You can't serve money and have a healthy relationship with God. Money can't control you. It can't dictate your life. It can't tell you what to do today. It can't tell you how to save. It can't tell you how to spend. It can't tell you anything. If it is giving you your instructions, then you are not in love with the Lord. That relationship's going to look more like hate because a loving relationship's going to be in relationship. There's a reciprocal love. There's a, you got all that. Turn to, we're going to turn to 1 Timothy. Paul picks into 1 Timothy 6. Paul digs into this subject matter in more depth with more words. First Timothy 6, I believe we're picking this up in verse 2. No, we're not. Where am I picking this up? Verse 3. Okay. If anyone teaches otherwise, does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud. This is, this is why we began with Agur in the very beginning. There is a, there's a pride that thinks that we can keep a proper balance in all of our different spheres and relationships in life when we allow something else to give us instruction, to give us identification outside of our relationship with God. So if there's a teaching, if there's an idea, if there's something that's churning on in, in your heart that's not in line with the teachings of Jesus, directly, you're proud, you're not humble. And you really, even in your knowledge, you truly, you may be an expert in some things, but you know nothing because you're obsessed with these disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds uh, and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. This ties into how Paul is addressing the Corinthian church. But this ties a lot into, again, that which we value in life, your relationships with other human beings. 
Often we can approach those relationships from this position of pride. Here's what I know. Here's what I know that I want you to know. Here's why my opinion is right and your opinion is wrong. Here's why I want you to follow me so that you can esteem me and my doctrines and my teachings in opposition to and against that of other people. Thinking that my teaching and my knowledge and my life experiences, I give you instructions that I need you to value what I am saying above what Jesus would say. And we see this consistently throughout religion. You see it in the sphere of government. You see this in the sphere of workplaces where people are making a demand for you to value them and their opinions greater than the source of truth. And Paul is saying, turn away, withdraw yourself, move yourself away, your mind, your eyes, your ears away from those who think that godliness, that think that religion is just a mean for their own personal gain. However, godliness with contentment is great gain. Whether you are rich or you are dirt poor, this whole idea of being satisfied, being satiated with none other than God, that is the position that we all ought to be aiming for because that's where peace comes in our life, tranquility, understanding, knowledge, there is great gain in regards to living out his righteousness when you value him more than anything else. Verse 7, it's a guarantee. We brought nothing into this world. It is certain we can carry nothing out. If you want to put value on your money, on your home, on your diplomas, whatever you want to place value on, it is a guaranteed fact. You're not taking it to heaven with you. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Is that a challenging verse? All you need is food because you need to eat. And you need clothing to protect yourself from the elements. Could you truly be content with those two items and just the Lord? It's a great meditation. And the great meditation, the great question of just being able to sit down with the Lord in that is, could God take away like he took away from Job in your life? Could he take away your home? Could he take away your car? Could he take away your job? Could he take away your children? Could he take away your friendships? This isn't saying that there's not pain in the taking. It's not saying that there's not emotion because there's a balance in this. But if all of that was stripped away, And you know that God has not forsaken you, that there he is in relationship with him. And he is providing you clothing from the elements. And he is providing you food to eat day in and day out. Could you be content? If your soul is going, no! It's it's an indicator 
that there are things that you value that are really important to you, that if God took those away, you'd question him. You'd question his love. You'd question his sovereignty. You'd have doubt in your faith. Does God really love me? Am I really saved? And if your heart is, Lord, I'm asking to to be able to keep what you've given. I like my job. I like my home. My kids are all right. I like to keep them. You know what I'm saying? It's just, Lord, I have open hands. I want to treasure you and value you above anything else that this life has to offer so that as I enjoy all of the abundant blessings that you give to me, I want to enjoy it. I want to enjoy my job. I want to enjoy my home, my car, the vacations, the clothes, the relationships with other human beings. But Lord, don't ever let those things become greater than you because... Where my treasure is, there my heart is also. Let me be content, Lord, satiated, trusting. Verse 9, but those, those who desire to be rich, if your eye gate is seeking the material wealth, every single individual falls into temptation, falls into a snare, a trap, falls into many foolish and harmful lusts, desires, which drown men and women in destruction and perdition. And here's the, here's the major statement. For the love of money, it's not money itself, but it's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we can see this in all systems, whether it's our systems of economy, our systems of religion, our systems of government, We can see this oppression occur everywhere when the love of money becomes greater than our value and our love for God. It is the root. It is what is nourishing all kinds of evil. For what some, for, for which some, they've strayed from the faith in their greediness and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Again, this, this is a warning. This is an admonishment. It is saying the exact same thing that Jesus was saying there on the hills of the Sea of Galilee. Paul is repeating that same information. If you are treasuring money, beware. Because even your faith can be shipwrecked. But you, oh man, oh woman of God, run away, flee from these things. Pursue like a bloodhound, hunt righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and you've confessed to the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You've made that public confession that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the same good confession before Pontius Pilate 
that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And command those who are rich, if you have that material wealth in this present age, don't be haughty. Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant, but be humble. Nor trust in those uncertain riches. Your faith, it's not in your bank account. It's not in the material items. The material things that we do have, regardless of their abundance in your current context, they are uncertain. They can all be gone today. But trust in the living God who gives us richly all things for what? To enjoy. And that's why I love this conversation of balance. The material things that you do have in your life, enjoy. Enjoy the blessings that God's given to you. Enjoy the material things. Eat, drink, be merry underneath the umbrella of the fear and the trust of God. Those who have riches in this present age do good, that you may be rich in good works, not just rich in material wealth, but be ready to give, willing to share, storing up for yourselves a good foundation in eternity, not laying up for your tre- yourself more treasures here on earth, but laying for yourself treasures in the time to come that you may lay hold of eternal life. Worship team, come on up. Here's the major idea that Jesus is playing at and getting at in his instruction in regards to his kingdom and his righteousness. It's all about the heart. It's all about that which we think on and that which we meditate on through our life experience. And as he is going through different subject matters in this sermon, when he gets to your idea of this is something that you have, that you attribute value to. And again, this is not just money. This can be how you think people value you as a person. That that idea of what you think other people think about you, that could be your most valuable thought in your life. And it can be all-consuming. That when you feel that other people are treasuring you, then you're treasuring them and you're elated and you feel good. But when you feel people are disrespecting you, not loyal, they hate you, they're making fun of you, they're not including you in the reindeer games, so to say, then that's when you get depressed and discouraged and you lack contentment and you want to lash out. I bring that up just as a singular example that as Jesus is addressing this whole idea, getting to this conclusion ultimately in in this portion that you can't serve two masters. You exist for your creator. Your creator 
values you. He treasures you. You are precious and you are special to the greatest degree that he sent his son to die for all of that which corrupts you, that which eats away, that which consumes in this world. He has given to you his light. He has given to you his life, his love, his grace, his mercy. These are all meditation points for things for you to consider. This is who and what you have in him. May your soul not forget any of his incredible benefits. Because when you forget, and you will forget, and I do forget, and we begin to treasure these side issues in life, this is when my relationship with God becomes unhealthy. The light within me is starting to get dim and dark. And my relationships with others become unhealthy because that reciprocal relationship that I have with another human being is now based upon a worldly treasure. And that can be an emotion or that can be a material thing. Jesus is always, give me all of you. Love me. Serve me. Listen to me. See me with the highest value that you can place on God. He is high. He is exalted. He is worthy. If your opinion of God is, if it's not high, if he is not your most valuable thought, thing, hope, that's an indicator that your relationship is off, that there's a drifting, that there's a lack of health. And the meditation point is get that right in this moment. This is what communion is about. We're holding these elements. Here is Christ's body. Here is his blood. Here is the treasure of heaven that has been given to me for the remission of my sins. Here is the treasure of heaven that has been given to me. His life, his light. I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. I'm grateful. I'm content. I'm at peace. God, you give, and I'm going to hold, and you take away, and I'm going to let go. But blessed be your name, Lord God Almighty, because you are good. And it's that heart, that purity, that treasure, that is what keeps us on a path following him. As life comes at us from all different angles, the good experiences that we treasure and value and the bad experiences that we want nothing to do with, may he just dominate. Lord, may you dominate our souls. And wherever there's darkness within us, Lord, May you come rushing in with your marvelous, eternal, glorious light and illumination. And make yourself known to these foolish men and women. We love you, Lord. We need you. And without you, we know nothing. But in you, we have all the treasures of heaven. Amen.